Welcome to Urban Voices, an audio experience bringing the work and knowledge of urban professionals closer to you. The Urban Voices podcast is hosted by the European Urban Knowledge Network. Based in The Hague, the EUKN is the only network of national governments working together on urban issues for sustainable urban development. My name is Adela Hankes. I am the Communication and Policy Officer at the EUKN and will be your host for today. Welcome to another episode of Urban Voices, in which we're going to be talking about women in urban environments, and more specifically, their safety and perceptions of safety. Feelings of unsafety are dependent on many different elements in both the built environment and the city as a social, economic and political system. Of course, this topic is part of a wider societal discussion on gender equality, the patriarchal system and all people feeling welcome in the public space. Today, we will maintain a focus on unsafety and harassment as a daily occurrence for women and girls in cities. Um, we're mostly going to be talking about cities located in the Western cultures. If you find this topic interesting and would like to find out more and find more information and expert contributions, you can visit the UKN website following our Policy Lab for Belgium with the same focus. After a short introduction to the theme from my side, I will introduce our speaker, Elizabeth Els-Enhus, who uh, will have a chat with me about the spatial and social elements of crime and fear of crime, perceptions of crime, public awareness and potential solutions to fear of crime and women harassment in cities and public spaces. Street harassment is a near-universal experience for women and girls in cities, no matter the cultural or geographical context. According to the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, 65% of European women have been whistled at on the street. 35% of women have experienced sexist remarks, mocking, or insults. And 37% of women have been followed during part of their journey on a daily basis. Gender-based harassment is a widespread phenomenon and it limits women's ability to move around and navigate urban environments freely, safely and comfortably. Many different factors influence how women navigate cities and public spaces. Our guest today can tell us a lot more about the subject, so please welcome Elizabeth Els-Enhus, Professor Emeritus of Criminology, who teaches courses on criminological encounters and crime in the city. Professor, could you tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, and your area of focus and research? Hello, and uh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share some of my research findings on the on this important team. Um, well, my background, after my studies in sociology, I worked from uh, 1975 as a researcher in the sociology department uh, to be appointed 10 years later as a researcher in criminology. So uh, they had to do research on the relationship of population and police. Um, and and that's from then on, it became the, the start of a long career of researching daily police practices and police culture mainly. Um, and I obtained a PhD of the Belgian uh, government discourses on police in 1999. So I started my career as a professor quite late. My research on policing then gradually expanded uh, to include research on feelings of insecurities and prevention. And since uh, 2010, all these terms increasingly focused on the city. So crime and fear uh, and the city. And I'm retired since uh, 2018 and currently mainly doing research on uh, crime and feelings of insecurities in cities in relation to the nights. Interesting and a very interesting kind of pathway that led you to, to the yeah. research that you're doing now. Um, thank you for introducing yourself. Um, so the topic of women in cities is an extremely wide and complex one and one that you also tackle yourself. Uh, to be able to break it down kind of the best we can, I thought uh, we could focus on the built environment and how the spatial elements affect how women navigate the city. 
So to understand the correlation between perceptions on, of unsafety and the built environment, could you delve into what you have described in your previous research as uh, the fear or perception of crime and how this differs from actual crime and actual crime on, on the spot and on the city level? And uh, how does it also affect women's feelings of safety on a daily basis? Yes, it will be a long explanation because this whole question on terms and concepts is uh, is quite complicated. Of course. But I try to do my best. Um, so yeah, empirically, empirical research worldwide uh, looking for a relationship between fear of crime and victimization systematically leads to the same result. Only a weak relationship is found between the two phenomena. This means that only a small group of crime victims, let's say in between 5 to 15%, also measure more fear of crime. A very clear example is the difference between young men and women. Women feel the most unsafe, but are the least victims of crime. And this contrasts with young men who feel the safest, but have the highest victimization rates. So the researchers turned this finding as the fear of victimization paradox. There is debate on how to explain this paradox. And the most dominant one seeks explanation in the difference in risk behavior between men and women. Young men exhibit more, uh, much more uh, risk behavior than women. Because of their fear of becoming victims of crime, women also avoid situations such as going out late at night, taking all kinds of precautions, not opening the door in the evening, etc. And in the recommendations of these studies, supporters of this explanation argue that women need to be better informed about the real risk of crime they face in order to reduce their fear. But more recent research on sexual harassment, and mainly this topic, argues that it's necessary to nuance the fear of victimization paradox find, and the various uh, explanations. And this uh, was also clear after analyzing the results of uh, thesis of a student of mine by Yuyan Parinas. And uh, we were working with the results of the Plan International Safest City Survey for Brussels. So in this survey, you had a, a large survey of uh, 1,800 respondents, uh, and they could there point uh, or signal um, incidents, uh, positive and negative uh, experiences in Brussels. Uh, they could point it at the map describe them uh, on the website of uh, the Plan International. On the basis of these empirical findings, um, I think we should come to other conclusions on this fear of victimization paradox. So I first will cite a bit on what were the results of this study. Looking at the participants' response on the relationship between crime and fear, because in this uh, research, it's interesting that the crime the, the crime they experience, which are the incidents, and the fear they feel are connected uh, immediately, which is not the case in most surveys been done. Um, so we see that the majority um, of our respondents, uh, and it's 68%, which is a lot, I think, uh, cite sexual harassment without direct physical contact, which is... Um, for example, whistling, catcalling, flashing, being followed, unwanted remarks about one's body, unwanted glances, unwanted flirting, and other sexual advances. As a cause for the fear in public spaces. So the incident is the, the, all these types of uh, sexual harassment uh, but non-physical. This is in contrast with 11% of the participants that cited sexual harassment with direct physical contact, which is then uh, unwanted touching or physical contact, uh, an arm around the shoulder or a hand placed on a tit or, or other body parts as a cause of their fear. 9% um, cited a combination of both. Uh, 
non-physical and physical contact. And as previous research showed, the relationship between fear and classical forms of crime are also limited here, where I already cited. Uh, here we find 7% attributed their fears to robbery and theft. So there is something else going on, in fact. Um, only 4%, and this is a bit uh, a pity for the question you already asked about urban uh, environment, uh, attributed their fear to other factors and this, so the urban built environment. So looking at where the incidents took place, um, it, uh, so what, what were the places where the women had, because it's mainly women, uh, in this uh, research, uh, had bad experiences, 70% reported walking in the street. In the most, it's the most common place of incidents. Public transport was also associated with anxiety, and this is about 40% of them. Um, the incidents also happened while going to school uh, or to work. So all this seems to indicate there is a significant number of women are hindered in their daily routine. I think that's a very important conclusion. And the next one is even more important. They also face these incidents on a daily basis. It's constantly. It doesn't stop. And they tell us that they get used to it, uh, according to 35% of the women. It's, it's a scary, scary statistic overall. It is. Uh, it is. Absolutely. Well transmitted as well. As a young woman, I mean, it it's also affects me quite a lot. But um, yeah, 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 sure. Okay, I will now go into uh, night and day, because I think also there the, the results are quite revealing. Mm -hmm. We also found that most of the respondents reported their incident had occurred in the evening, 27%, uh, and in the afternoon, 28%, which um, only nine happened in the morning or early morning. But it's even more worrying that a very significant amount, 24%, indicated that they have felt unsafe during the whole day, night or day. It doesn't matter. And based on, on more, more in-depth uh, answers in the open question, we found that regardless of whether there's more or fewer incidents in the light or in darkness, those in darkness seem to indicate greater amounts of fear. This appeared to be largely consistent with other findings, like the one of Matthew Sun and others, who in their study on women's experiences in Sydney found that darkness heightens their sense of needing to be careful in the public spaces of the city. So, Knowing all this, um, how would you say it affects a woman's movement around the city and the way she utilizes the public space? Yeah, the effect of the incidents on women are heavily impeded to freedom of movement. 33% of the participants indicated that they do not visit the place of their fears anymore and when they are alone. And 70% of the participants say that they choose an alternative way to their destination. More generally, we see it does not impact women's presence in public space as much as the way they exert their spatial freedom. Very few, 6%, said they never went back there, with the overwhelming majority of the respondents saying that they would only go out to that place accompanied by somebody else. In other words, women's fear have a higher impact on how they move through public space than whether they participate in public spaces. That's interesting. And do you have any information whether... Um, the people who accompany women in those public spaces are other women or if they feel safer, for example, with an older person or a man uh, by their side? Yeah, most of them will choose uh, either indeed uh, a man, which will be often their boyfriend or man, uh, but very often also women. And think uh, they, as, as a group, but as women, they it's not enough. There are two of them. Uh, they will prefer to work in, in bigger groups. 
uh, to use the spaces where they're afraid of. Huh? It's mm -hmm. about that. So I think um, when I interpret these results that I now just presented, uh, we see that the majority, uh, for the majority, women's fear is not that much influenced by victimization of classical forms of crime, but a whole range of acts and facts that are not socially defined as crime such as this whistling, catcalling, being followed, unwanted comments, and so on. Um, this, this is behavior about which there is no social consensus um, that, that it should be criminalized, where the victims are not recognized in their victimhood. At best, it is seen as annoying, as something that just happens in social intercourse between people of different gender. This view is shared by a lot of women. They normalize the situation. This is the way it is. It has always been this way. On the other hand, we see that recently more and more women are starting to talk about the impact of non-physical uh, sexual harassment, perceiving it as a serious violation of their integrity, of their womanhood. So. For the 20% of the women who were victims of physical sexual harassment, and this is on daily base, don't forget that, uh, in public spaces, um, they may receive more recognition of their victimization. With regard to these acts, we do see a greater willingness to see them as criminal acts uh, when it becomes physical. That's just like a border. Huh? Here too, uh, we see that normalization plays a role. But it has led uh, to some crimi to criminalization of physical uh, acts, and in some cases also non-physical, like the, for example in Belgium. And you see that more and more countries are talking about criminalizing either physical sexual harassment, either both forms of sexual harassment. The, the discussions are going on. And I just found out that in England, apparently, there is a law to be created about it. That's so, good. yeah, good. interesting. <laughs> um, so, in order to think how to respond on all these problems, I think we need to define the problem as precise as possible and to be vigilant that the concepts we use are clear. These results that I now presented indicate that it can lead to confusion to talk to fear of crime. This is why I myself talk, chose to talk about fear. Fear of crime has become a multifaceted umbrella concept with an enormous variety of the definitions. Um, and it doesn't help when discussing the problems women are facing. So I talk about fear and try to describe it as precise as possible. This is not an easy task because fear is equally a concept, a, a complex concept. I choose to recognize a, a psychological dimension to that fear as well as a social one. Uh, recent research find, um, findings on how women moved to the city and the impact of both the incidents they faced and the multi-layered anxiety they developed lead me to conclude that women carry a lot of other things than men in their own psychological backpacks they carry. And this backpack is also filled with experience acquired in interactions with men, with groups of men, with other women, with official services, with stories, warnings, images, fairy tales from their childhood, and contemporary stories of women's experience uh, from their environment, from the newspaper, political discourses, or social media. The content of that backpack are permanently, daily filled and carried with them. Uh, through this accumulated information, they constantly interpret situations and ask themselves questions such as, will this man harass me? Um, Am I not laughing too loud with the joke told in the group when I walk through the city? Um, are my clothes uh, appropriate for this situation? Should I take this route uh, or not? In fact, women are actually constantly on their guard. 
they never move freely to the city. And I think that's, for me, the most important finding of my research. All this information has been generated in a social context where women do not have the same rights as men. The fears they experience are not irrational or evidence of women being hysterical. It's the result of a backpack built up over a lifetime full of unpleasant, threatening, harmful experiences, which both acts uh, defined as crime, such as rapes, unwanted physical contacts, etc., along with all forms of deviant and transgressive behavior one encounters on a daily basis. By being permanently confronted with persistent and continuous forms of street harassment, a woman's personal space is involuntarily invaded. This affects their, perce their perception of security and creates a constant reminder of a possibility of sexual violence. For some women, the backpack is bigger than others, but all carry a certain burden, experience harm, they are just victims. Thank you so much. I think this is a very, very important and uh, unfortunately also relatable um, experiences and research. And uh, yeah, there's the the perception of crime and then the crime itself. Um, do you have any information about the relationship between the two? So how much of the perception is executed and actually a crime on the grounds of a city the main problem is that it's about definitions of crime what is crime mm -hmm. what i'm playing for is to say that we as women seek kinds of um, types of acts by other people that now don't have the label of uh, being crime and to me this is crime because it harms people. And this is my definition of what should be called crime. Mm -hmm. It's when it causes harm. And if you see the, the large harm being done to women, uh, because of all these acts they are encountered on a daily basis, I think even catcalling, which has been normalized, and been, I think it should be called crime. And we don't have any numbers on that. Mm -hmm. We do have numbers on sexual harassment, and that's the main problem is there, that indeed in public space, it's really very rare to be really a victim uh, of sexual harassment. Uh, I mean then uh, being absolutely abused um, uh, and even murdered, uh, because that's what a lot of women are afraid of. It's not... Uh, outside in the cities, it's not on the streets that the main murders are um, taking place. It's at home. It's mm -hmm. uh, within more private circle uh, that you see this um, happening. Um, so it's quite rare as a phenomenon that you have a really heavy um, sexual. Uh, abuses or, or harassment uh, in, in streets. Um, it's more this called smaller things that mm -hmm. often happen, uh, but I think they are important. Yeah. But yeah, thank you for this answer. I think it's also a topic for a whole other discussion as well, the definition of crime and, and knowing where to draw the line and how to how policies can also help with, with defining that. But to bring it back to the kind of street and city level and yeah. uh, more on a, of a physical space level, how um, and whether at all uh, elements of public space can change the perception of, of women and their perception of fear and make them feel differently in a space. Um, I'm thinking lighting, landscaping, architecture, how the street is built, how much public versus private space there is in a, mm -hmm. in a city. How can that affect uh, how women feel on the street? Yeah, it's a very, very... <laughs> Huge question to, to, to answer, but um, yeah, not every woman experiences uh, this um, built environment in the same way. That's very important to notice. Um, so I have another student doing research uh, also on how women uh, move to the city. Um, and there became very clear that their mental maps 
play a very important role, um, which are sort of uh, internalized geographic understanding, um, um, and which is um, embodied, in fact, also. It, it really has also an effect on how you live, how, you, how the fears are related to the way you move to the city. So both um, dismantled maps and embodied knowledge are subject to past experiences, again, um, with the hypothesis that negative memories override the positive ones. Um, so the streets, squares, the means of transport routes that we regularly use uh, and know will generate less fear. It's not one uh, clear uh, cut uh, answer to this uh, question. Mm -hmm. um, and it's again a bit more about perception than the actual built space itself, right? Yes, I think so. That was also what our, our research found out is mm -hmm. that indeed it's the perception of the space uh, more than, than the places themselves. You cannot, everybody has another view on this. What is important is also that um, there is a strong difference between night and day. I already cited it, uh, but a square, a street, a bus stop or with loitering youngsters and dirt lying around takes a totally different meaning in day than in night. Uh, darkness heightens the sense of needing to be careful for women. Um, and um, let's say the, the, the percentage of women that are afraid uh, of the dark is universally particularly high. Depending on the survey, one finds 75 to 90% of the women feeling unsafe in public spaces at night. Normally, the no most mentioned uh, situation is when you walk alone in a street, poorly lit. Uh, people are anxious uh, that when something happens, no help will be offered by bystanders. And women also assume that if there are more eyes on the street, they will be safer, especially if there are women's eyes. But women want to have, and I think that's uh, what, what is uh, really on this built environment, women want to have an overview um, that helps them to assess uh, possible danger. They want to have a very clear view and look as far as possible. Uh, so um, you have an overview over a street and you see where you're going through. So uh, a straight, well-lit street uh, will be much more reassuring than one with curves. Um, when you have to pass uh, or go through small alleys, tunnels, or corridors with little lights, that gives really a feeling of being checked. Um, and there the idea of having an escape, which is also constantly in the back of the mind of women, I need to escape or I need to look for help um, is, is very, uh, very important for them. They permanently scan the situation, especially at night, for places where men might hide behind. Um, and this could be bushes, uh, porches, corners, but also cafes or exit venues where they have to pass. Poor lit and maintained park can really create fear too. Um, here besides, well, this is interesting too, the fear of incident, they fear tripling or falling uh, because of uh, they go and jog in the park and uh, don't see enough, uh, have no good, good view. Um, women also fear more unsafe in dark when taking public transport um, and train and metro stations for example, during the day are already places where they are worried about being victimized because you have these large flows of people. But when these stations, but also the train and the metro cars themselves, uh, or in the corridors to the platforms, are virtually empty, it evokes very strong feelings of being checked again. A street with a lot of dirt, um, graffiti, smell is perceived as unsafe also but it's more by a limited number in daytime. In dark, uh, the fear will be heightened there. So as already mentioned, these mental maps of the spaces where, people, where women are moving through uh, plays a, a big role. And the backpack 
they are uh, carrying will will influence uh, the perceptions of these uh, spaces. Sounds like uh, all the stereotypes I also, are also true. So uh, kind of what we learn are more dangerous places uh, are in fact perceived as very dangerous and, and then avoided and uh, in terms of lighting and uh, street width and everything. Um, so thank you for, for the insightful statistics as well. That's uh, very eye-opening. That's also how I kind of want to segue into a policy framework and a more theoretical aspect of this issue. So we describe the problem, we describe the perception of the problem. And now I would like to know and kind of discuss how the higher level policymaking can support or increase the feeling of safety or in fact actually decrease uh, crime and feeling of unsafety of women in the cities. Um, so the urban planning and spatial side of this conversation is very interesting because it can be linked back to a common phenomenon of, of women being underrepresented in many disciplines, in architecture and urban planning and a lot of data and statistics as well. So to counteract these embedded gender biases and social consequences, um, we can try to vouch for effective policies, which can be developed and implemented, uh, preferably also uh, quickly rather than uh, on a longer term. So uh, UN Women developed the Safe Cities and Safe Public Spaces flagship program to ensure safe and empowering public spaces for women worldwide. One of the program's focus is a gender approach to urban and transportation planning. These types of interventions include investment in public infrastructure, such as lighting, inclusive playgrounds and housing, providing access to basic and essential services in the city. Other UN Habitat initiatives vouch for the involvement of girls in urban development processes to design cities in an inclusive way, uh, which I can imagine is also difficult with that perception and learned uh, fear uh, overview. Um, I know you are familiar with the Belgian context, and uh, there's a national action plan to combat gender-based violence, uh, which was launched last year. Uh, some of the measures formulated are aimed at adapting the ways in which police record data to obtain qualitatively accurate statistics, as well as measures to provide 24-hour uh, reception at police stations. Um, the plan also provides training for a wide range of professionals um, that want to, they want to pilot a project on smartphone alerts and aim to set up awareness raising actions and campaigns against any type of harassment. When it comes to these types of policies, to what extent do you think they can form an encompassing approach to eradicate uh, gender and women harassment? Um, is there, in your opinion, any specific element that is under or overrepresented, and how can policies actually support uh, the feeling of safety of women in cities? <laughs> it's a very difficult question you asked me. Yes, a very long one as well. <laughs> uh, yes, I think um, all these measures and, and initiatives are, are important and uh, interesting. Um, it's they are an important step in addressing the problem, but I hope I have outlined the complexity of the problem that makes us realize that the fact that sexual harassment is in all its aspect is now being addressed has to do with the changing place of women in society, or perhaps more precise, the fact that women are claiming a different place than they have been given so far. Uh, it is part of a broader social struggle that must be fought in many aspects of life. Um, and this struggle must be waged in, in uh, education, in upbringing, uh, at work, in leisure times, to name uh, but a few areas. I think it's uh, important that initiatives and measures are well thought over. In doing so, we must be aware of the fact that by implementing several measures, measures simultaneously, the effects of one measure can cancel out those of others. Um, so thinking things through properly means considering each time what is the impact of a measure or initiative might, might have. 
um, and taking into account that they can be both uh, that there can be both a desired and an undesired impact. I think in more in general we think too little in terms of impact when we plan a prevention project. So this may so this this problem of undesired impact is um, I'll give an example because it makes it more clear. Um, it's uh, the case of some countries like Brazil um, and in the city of Rio, they decided to provide uh, separate carriages for women in the metro to prevent sexual harassment. Um, in short terms, this may increase women's sense of safety, but it does not solve the change in mentality that is needed among men. Uh, and once back in public space, uh, this will not stop the incidents and probably increase women's anxiety. And for example, you, you cited uh, the, the, the project of the smartphone alerts of women. It might enhance their feelings of safety, but for some be interpreted as a sign to feel more worried and change their way they use the city, they move to the city, the, the, and all these other kind of stuff. So it is not a simple uh, thing to do. Um, I think we need to be very careful that the measures do not encourage the current, current securization trend. Um, we are becoming more and more securitized and feel increasingly more unsafe. Uh, we live in a culture of fear. That's only fueled by taking all kinds of measures such as cameras, uh, security of houses, other infrastructure, checks, passes, searches, etc. People retreat, for example, into gated communities where they sometimes indeed feel safer, but their fear once outside this community only fuels them. So do we have to avoid and protect? No, I think that is for me a very important criteria to, to look uh, at uh, proposed measures. We often have the idea that we have to look for short-term solutions, which is the case. Women are feeling fearful, are being victimized, so they need to be an answer, but really also try to find answers that are working on cultural changes because this is uh, the most easiest interventions are those who are structural uh, you create an app or you get more light um, but does it solve problems no uh, not always because there is at the meantime also a cultural problem we're in the middle of a big cultural fight and this also have to be taken uh, with into all these measures so more concrete, yeah, I'm in favor of more insight on data on the on the phenomenon, but I do not believe it possible to achieve better quality of statistics for police. Um, the problem with most forms of sexual harassment I have outlined is great is great is a great difficulty in providing evidence to the police about the incident. In fact, uh, how, how are you going to prove that this guy was laughing at me or, or, or gave me some uh, nasty remarks? It's impossible. These are sometimes acts of, what, one second, two seconds, uh, one minute. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's nearly impossible. Or you should film it. But at that time, you, you take a high risk. Um, so, so it's not very easy to... to, to to think in terms of evidence, and, and this is the logic of police. They cannot do anything if there is not uh, some kind of evidence about the fact itself. This is, in fact, also the main reason why the Belgian law on sexual harassment, um, which I do appreciate, huh, this law, but it doesn't work. But it might be important to create laws uh, on this matter. And I'm not that, uh, I, you have people who are very negative about the law we have now. I don't. Because I think we should realize that law, the, this law, like so many other laws, is rather a moral frame that you create about what we as a society do and do not tolerate. It's a tool to counter the normalization and, and a point of reference, but it's hardly enforceable. 
by the penal chain due to this nature of street harassment. Uh, so I would plead for uh, indeed uh, create laws and make them not. Yeah, the Belgian law is being criticized because too vague. Um, but as you have heard, this whole uh, phenomenon of sexual harassment with all its components is indeed very vague what is happening there. So, yeah, I don't think we have another solution. But it's, it draws a line, as you said before. Yeah. Provided that the police receive an in-service in training on the importance of sexual harassment and is securing occurrence, the provision of a 24-hour reception seems to me a good initiative. But I think uh, this 24-hour reception, I think uh, the fact that they mentioned it, normally they should be 24 hours uh, open. They are not, apparently, because otherwise it wouldn't have been in, a, in, in the proposition. Um, so there is a shortage of manpower. And on the other hand, the culture of police is still uh, a, a problem in accepting uh, another way of looking at women and the way they perceive uh, all these acts uh, on daily basis. Yeah, I miss a bit the proposal here uh, on the bystander training initiatives that we now currently see popping up everywhere. And I think they are very important uh, and supportive for women to feel that, to feel their mutual solidarity and possibility also to intervene when necessary. Men can also play a role here, uh, by the way. Um, and I miss a bit more, uh, more clear. Um, policy lines or interventions, um, which has to do with the night itself, with the nighttime uh, economy, with going out of women at night, uh, because they have also, uh, yeah, there are particularly very specific problems there. Um, and the role of lighting also, what's the role that lighting can play in this whole story, I think uh, should be much more uh, clear. But um, I think it must be clear, and, and, and I hope it was clear <laughs> from what I told until now, that we also really need interventions in the field of education, family, schools. Um, despite the important steps already been taken to rethink the position of women in society, I think there is still a lot of work to be done. And today, I think um, the changes we need to have a totally different experience of women in cities is to, uh, we have to change this idea that girls and women are still too often brought up in the idea that they are vulnerable. This is so dominant. And I see this, this is the debate I have with my students also. And they are very convinced that this is one of the very important uh, aspects of uh, changing lives uh, of women in cities. Change this idea of being vulnerable, having more, more solidarity between uh, each other, helping each other, and being present. The fact that you are present as a woman uh, is claiming also the city. Be there. They have the right to be there. Claim the right and be there. But to, to do this, you need to debunk this idea of women being vulnerable. And I think this also is, is a part where we really should work on and take measures. Thank you. So from I, what I understand is that policies are an important tool, but uh, they will not work by themselves. And it's really about a wider um, issue tackling and education and culture. So it cannot just be pinpointed for policies to fix uh, the problem of, of women in cities. Yeah. Uh, that being said, uh, I also know that having an integrated approach to policies and decision making can be beneficial. So you mentioned a lot of different areas and a lot of different um, professions that can come together to to combat the issues. Uh, do you think that having a multidisciplinary approach to the policy making and having a lot of people, a lot of women express uh, their feelings, their their fears, could that help? in the policy making and create even more tools to, to combat the issues? 
Yeah, I'm absolutely, uh, absolutely agree with uh, with that uh, idea. Yeah, yeah, indeed, we should bring together uh, urban planners, sociologists, psychologists, uh, social workers, also uh, pedagogues, also criminologists, uh, architects, engineers. Indeed, um, it was funny because I was part of a European study on public lighting, and I had sessions with the engineers. Uh, who had to create this lighting and were discussing on dimming the light or even cutting public lighting and so on and the systems and the color of lighting it's, it's there that i got the knowledge on how this public lighting can influence uh, field right but i had really to have very intense meetings with them to make them clear that they had to take women's feelings of insecurity seriously and then when they eventually admitted that they had never, they have never thought about that in a way, really not. But they became so convinced, also in contact with the woman that we then uh, used in this research, that they, uh, from then on, spontaneously took all these ideas into, into account in their proposals. I think that's where we need to go to. So, yeah, we need to involve women. and. Um, and I think it's very uh, interesting to see that the women then in this European study that were involved, the effect of first being listened at, well, that's very important point. They did also to come into the open about their feelings of fear, which is also a, a problem that women, because we all normalize it, we don't even talk about it in between women. Uh, so that was surprising for these women. Uh, but they also, because of this whole process and working with the engineers and having this uh, idea that they really were li listened up and taken serious, they uh, they put their own fears into a different perspective also. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, this discussion could really go on forever and it's a very important one to have as well. Um, but unfortunately, time is running out for us. And um, I'd like to ask you as a conclusion, uh, since you have a research background and a criminology background, could you share your perspective or an overview of some main takeaways for urban policymakers or policymakers and decision makers on a city level? Uh, what can we consider? What do we need to consider to design or lead towards more gender just urban environments and safe urban environments? Mm, yeah, I think uh, the conclusion that it's about the interpretation of space and it's not about the space itself. Um, is a very important one. I think one of the findings of a researcher uh, telling that decades of public life have taught my body not to trust public space is very important for uh, for policymakers and uh, city developers. So it's to realize indeed that they should, uh, when creating space, see how this is being interpreted. And, and so look more to the, the symbolic uh, aspect of, of this uh, city life and, and the way they, they try to, to, to make policy uh, out of that. I think that's uh, a very important one. And it's primarily, for me, uh, you need to have uh, attention and recognition uh, to the experience of women in the city themselves. Their voices must be hear, heard. I think that's a very important one. And this means that we should uh, find fora where we can meet each other and, and talk about it, uh, measure, uh, listen to the stories and so on. Um, yeah, I think um, we, we, we could develop cities in another way, also by involving them really in this policymaking processes. Um, I was thinking, for example, to at uh, Barcelona, where they decided to create these spaces where you could meet each other in the neighborhoods, very much uh, planned. And it's not, uh, it's, it's interesting to notice that the mayor of Barcelona is a woman. Huh? So um, it's creating spaces where you create more the chances of creating um, community. Uh, 
I think, uh, will already help a lot. Uh, it won't help the woman visiting a, a strange city. Uh, and it will, won't perhaps not help the commuters uh, uh, coming to cities uh, day on daily basis. But at least it will, uh, I think, help uh, the in inhabitants to, to have another life. And I think that's where we have to go for. This uh, changes of cities seeing as... Um, economic as, as the centers of econo economic and, and commercial activity um, which have been dominant for for years uh, it's now been countered by other discourses and and pointing more at life in cities at how people live there how can we enhance quality and i think women can in policy making uh, give much more influence this way of thinking um, so also create another discourse so integration participation basically more visibility to to the issues um, yes. is what we need and uh, what we need to push forward um, I really want to let all of that discussion sink in, uh, both for myself and for our listeners, because um, it's quite a dense one and, and quite an important one, um, and one that uh, I think really policymakers can benefit from as well. So I encourage every decision maker to, to listen to this podcast, take some conclusions, <laughs> write some notes, and include a lot of women in policymaking processes, but also research to, to see what's actually happening and how the perception is being uh, both interpreted and also felt on a city level. Thank you so much, Els, for participating in the third episode of Urban Voices, the podcast. I appreciate your expertise and uh, all of the research that you shared with us. Um, as I mentioned, I think it's a vital, vital subject nowadays. So um, I think your, your expertise and knowledge will be much appreciated. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for listening to the third episode of Urban Voices, the EUKN podcast. This one was on a really important and difficult subject. Uh, so thank you again to our very special guest. You can find more information on this topic as well as many other urban themes on the EUKN website. We will include all the specific links in the description of the podcast. We're also open to feedback and uh, encourage an ongoing conversation on the subject as well as other themes in the urban sphere. So feel free to engage with us on social media or send us an email. Again, all links will be provided below in the description of the podcast. Thank you again for listening and until next time.